Uh, perhaps you're at the grocery store or you're just walking into the break room at, at work and you overhear these folks talking about you and they describe you using the word meek. How would you take that? Is that a compliment? Is that a cut down? Maybe we can put it a different way. If you were to think of a word when I say meek, what word comes to mind? Would it be gentle? Would it be timid? Would it be mousy? Would it be shy? Spineless? Namby-pamby? Well, we've come to Jesus' third statement in the Beatitudes, where he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In this sermon series, it's called Happy Life, a series for the cynical, tired, and dissatisfied. And the reason that we called it Happy Life is because the Greek word that begins each of these statements in the Beatitudes, makarios, is translated in the ESV and in most modern English translations as blessed. But in the past, it was often translated as happy. So we could rightly say, happy are the meek. But we really have to slow down and think about this word, happy. Because when we hear the word happy, we probably think of a fleeting momentary emotional feeling. But that's not always the way that the word was used. Greek philosophers, like Aristotle, wrote about happiness. It's the result of a life well lived, according to Aristotle. And he would use the same Greek word, makarios. But he would say that a happy life is a virtuous life. That's really the pursuit or goal of philosophy uh, at all, is what, what makes us happy. What is the good life? How do we reach our fulfillment as humans? Virtually all philosophers agree that virtues are the way to pursue happiness. Even Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the founding fathers, who of course wrote about the, the pursuit of happiness, he said that happiness is really related to virtue. Even Ben Franklin said that virtue and happiness are mother and daughter related in that sense. In other words, happiness in the past was a way of speaking of a satisfied, uh, flourishing sort of life. Most of the time now, though, as, as I mentioned, it's more like a lighthearted, silly sort of emotional state. It's a fleeting momentary thing. Maybe we could call them a, a thick happiness and a thin happiness. Maybe that would help us sort of separate the two, that there is a thick happiness that means more than this thin happiness that we often use it as. So a thick happiness, then, would be the highest good of a virtuous life. And then a thin happiness might be just a good feeling, which is usually signified with a smile. But let's reclaim, for the sake of the sermon series at least, but really for our Christian discipleship, this thicker meaning of the word happiness this older, thicker meaning of it, of blessedness, of flourishing. And it's with that in mind that I want to suggest the big idea for our sermon ought to be the happy life is a meek life. The happy life is a meek life. I want us to know that meekness is a virtue that we need to cultivate. This is not the sort of thing that comes easily to us, doesn't come naturally to us, has to be worked on as a habit, as a posture of our hearts. 
And so we're going to ask three questions together in our time as we're considering this one verse, Matthew 5, 5. And those three questions are this. What is meekness? What is the earth? And why is this good news? What is meekness? What is the earth? Why is this good news? My hope is that we'll leave here with a deeper submission to and dependence upon God's loving providential care in our lives. Let's pray as we start. Father, we, we need your help this morning. Would you, by your spirit, work in us uh, the things that you need to bring to mind uh, as we're sitting under your word preached? Help us to think of ways in which we, even this last week, have not been meek. Maybe things we need to repent of, things we need to confess. Father, would you do that this morning for for the good of us, for the good of others, and for the glory of your name. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, what is meekness? Meekness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5. Colossians 3 says that as God's chosen ones, we are to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Timothy 6 says that we are to pursue gentleness or meekness. So we can see not just from our own singular verse today, but across the Bible in general, that meekness is something that is true of the Christian. It's a result of the indwelling Holy Spirit. But it's also something that we need to put on, something that we need to pursue. But what is it? The word for meekness here is used to describe Jesus in a couple of passages, and it could be translated as gentle, it could be translated as humble, in fact that's true in the ESV. In fact, Jesus describes himself with this same word in Matthew chapter 11. He is gentle and lowly, that word for gentle is the same word here as meek. And then in Matthew 21, when Jesus is triumphantly entering into Jerusalem, he's coming in as a king who is humble and mounted on a donkey. That word for humble is the same word here in Matthew 5, 5. So as we think about Christian meekness, we have to look to Jesus, of course. He is meekness embodied. So the fact that Jesus was meek should keep us from defining meekness as weakness or any lack of strength. Jesus was powerful, after all, Maybe you remember that scene as Jesus was betrayed and arrested in the garden. The soldiers came, they brought their weapons, and they came to him, and he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? But I am he. And as he speaks these words, they fall down to the ground. The revelation of Jesus' divine identity knocks them off their feet, simply as he spoke. Of course, one of the disciples grabs a sword, cuts off one of the soldier's ears. And what does Jesus say? He says, put your sword down. Don't you think that I could appeal to my father and he would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? No one took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down willingly. He was powerful. The question now is why didn't he put his power to use? Why didn't he flex? 
Why didn't Jesus call on those legions of angels that he had at his beck and call? How is he able to endure suffering without bitterness, without a desire to retaliate? How could he ask for those who are murdering him to be forgiven, even in the act of his crucifixion? How could he meekly accept the undeserved outrage that he was the target of? And he didn't even open his mouth in response. How? He trusted his father. What greater picture of meekness could we ask for than when we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? just before his crucifixion, praying, sweating blood, asking if it were possible for this cup of wrath, suffering to be removed from him. But he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. This beatitude is almost a direct quotation of Psalm 37, which was our call to worship text this morning. If you have your Bible open, and you should, please turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, in verse 11 in particular, says, The meek shall inherit the land. That should sound very familiar to us. So as we're trying to flesh out this idea of meekness, we have to look closer at Psalm 37. So if Jesus is referencing this, we need to understand the context of what Jesus is alluding to. So if you've got your Bible open to Psalm 37 there, look at it. Look at verse 11. The person that you can see is described as meek there in verse 11. You see it? It's also someone who can be described as someone who trusts in the Lord, verse 3 says. Someone who delights in the Lord, according to verse 4. Someone who waits patiently for the Lord, in verse 7. Someone who lives righteously, even though it looks like evil people are, are living their best life now, in verse 7. Who restrains his anger or his uh, wrath, Verse 8, who trusts that the Lord will not forsake his saints, a little bit further down in verse 28. So the meek person, Psalm 37, that Jesus is alluding to, is the one who lives in complete dependence on and submission to God. Anger is our response of being restrained or constrained in some way. We might think of meekness as being a corrective virtue that corresponds to anger. Does that make sense? It's a bridling of our passion. We might think of meekness as being uh, a, a bad thing, but I want really to have this bigger, thicker, fuller meaning of it from the Bible. It's a bridling of our passion. And it's not because our passions are inherently bad or evil, but because we recognize that one day, our constraints and our sources of anger will one day be reversed when we inherit the promises of God. Proverbs 16.32 says that whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. So it's a, an idea of restraining the passion. I want to suggest that meekness is an active, quiet determination to yield to God's will based on what we've seen from Scripture. Christian meekness is an active, quiet determination to yield to God's will. So now, since we've got this definition, do you think of yourself as a meek person? Do you think of yourself as being meek? 
Do you want to be meek? Based on this definition. The word encourages us to do it. Jesus' example encourages us to do it. I know that it's not a popular virtue. It never has been. But to be honest, it feels like we've been living through a Rage Against the Machine music video for like the last two and a half years. Meekness is not hot right now. This is not, this is not in vogue to be meek. But here, Jesus, meekness is meant to accurately describe someone who will inherit the earth as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So we need to take this seriously. You still might not be convinced then. Let me, let me flip the beatitude upside down. See if it hits you this way a little bit different. This is a beatitude that reflects the values of our present world. The beatitude in reverse might say something like this. Congratulations to those who have an enthusiasm for vengeance, for your inheritance is hell. There's a sense in which meekness already describes the Christian. It is true of the Christian because he is willing to submit his eternal existence to God. That is a meek behavior. But this is also something that we have to aspire to. So when are you tempted to give in to your anger and not to meekness? Meekness can be enacted towards God, and it can be enacted towards other people. So let's think about how we might be meek towards God first. It might be like a bitterness or a grumbling against God. You know, maybe we find ourselves or, or those we love in a situation that we find intolerable, like a Milwaukee Bucks player who just thinks that there should have been a foul called. We throw up our hands and scrunch up our faces. <gasps> the injustice of it all, right? There is a place for lament, of course, in the Christian life. Hopefully you know that. We bring our complaints. We bring our questions to the Lord. But it should always end in submitting to the providential will of God. Like Job, covering our mouth, recognizing that we have no place to demand anything from the Lord. But it shows up not just in the way that we relate to God, but also in the way that we relate to others. It often shows up in relationships where you either have authority or you submit to authority. It goes both ways. Of course, Jesus' audience would not have had a great amount of authority in their lives, and yet he still called them to be meek. But if you're in a position of authority, say you're a supervisor or a parent or someone at work who's got a lot of authority and responsibility, when someone makes a mistake, are you quick to judge them, quick to demean them? This can be true, of course, in society at large. But to be real, it usually happens in relationships with the people that we are most close to, doesn't it? They're the ones usually at the receiving end of our lack of restraint. It's usually our spouses and our kids, isn't it? Our our close friends and family. But if we take the view that God desires meekness for us, and he works in us by his Holy Spirit toward that goal... We can see opportunities to show grace to our family members as good things rather than as frustrating things. How do we react when we're offended by someone close to us? What if Christ intends to help you grow in your sanctification to make you more like him through those difficult relationships in your life? 
What if your confrontations are actually opportunities to confront the corruptions of your heart? The furnace of our suffering and our trials are meant to purify us, like pure gold, 1 Peter 1.7 says. And meekness is being willing to, to bridle our passion, as we said, to amend our own desires, to submit them to the Lord, because we trust in the goodwill of God. One Puritan reminds us that the purest gold is the most pliable gold. This is hard. This is so hard. When so much of the world seems out of control, we, we go to spheres where we do have some control, and we sort of enact it. Just me? Surely not. We're tempted to vent our anger and our frustration in the areas where we do have some control. We can be quick to justify our anger in those areas too, right? Even over the smallest things. I deserve to vent my anger. How dare this person do this to me? How dare you walk across, across my floor with muddy shoes? Why have you not done the chores that I told you to do? Where is that paperwork that you said you were going to turn in? I've been really convicted of this as I have prepared for this sermon, meditating on this psalm, uh, this verse, this beatitude. I am so grateful that Christ, who has all authority over all of creation, does not come to me with a bitter list of my own failures. He doesn't want me to, to be broken, a bruised reed. He does not break, right? He doesn't want me to forget just how short I fall. I know that. I remember it. He could come to me and he could knock me to the ground with a word and he would be justified in doing it. But he comes to me with meekness. He comes in tenderness. And he says, I know that you're a sinner. I know that you're weak and wounded by the fall. Come to me Take my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. He moves towards us with pity, with love, with power, forgiveness. I want to be that way with others, and I know that I'm not. It's Satan's job to accuse brothers and sisters. Let's not partner in that. That's not our job. Oh, that we might be able to work towards one another. God, help us to make this a goal for ourselves. Individually as Christians and also as a community, as Trinity Bible Church. That we would extend grace and trust to others. Instead of suspicion and condemnation. That we would be a gathering of gentlemen. A gathering of gentle women. If you'd like to meditate more on meekness, and I encourage you to, there's a wonderful book by Matthew Henry, which is available online for free. It was written some 300 years ago, but it's very much readable. It's very much practical, very applicable. Look it up online if you just type in Matthew Henry, meekness and quietness of spirit. You can find it there. Well, growing in meekness is not easy. It's not the sort of thing that happens overnight. It definitely is not going to end. Uh, this sermon's not going to end with your total and complete meekness. Please be aware. But what a countercultural, worthwhile goal to be prepared to endure evil and to turn the other cheek. 
Do you entrust your life to Christ as your guardian, as your guide, no matter the unexpected turns that your path might take in life? This is only possible if we trust in God's providence. Trusting in God's providence is not a philosophical quest for the happiness. It is a confession of faith. The Dutch theologian Bovink says this, Providence is the confession that despite what it might look like, neither Satan nor a human being nor any other creature but God alone preserves and governs all things by his almighty and everywhere present power and wisdom. That confession can save us, it does two things. It saves us both from a superficial optimism that denies that there are events that take place that we are puzzled and riddled by. And it keeps us from a dark pessimism that despairs of this world and despairs of human destiny. So trusting that God is sovereign, that he's good, that he is governing all things, that he's guiding history helps us maintain meekness when it is difficult. But where is he taking us? What is our final destination? Our text tells us, the meek shall inherit the earth. So what is the earth? I want to suggest that the earth is the new creation earth. Remember that Jesus is alluding to Psalm 37, right? What is took a brief survey of that, and that psalm seems to be looking forward to a day of perfect judgment, of perfect deliverance, where there is no more wicked. The wicked will perish, God's saints are preserved forever in the land. This doesn't sound like a temporary thing uh, to me. A theologian named uh, Oren Martin wrote a really good book on this land promise, sort of tracking it throughout the the storyline of the Bible, and he points out helpfully that scripture begins with creation and the Garden of Eden, and then it ends, on the other hand, with the new heavens and a new earth. And in between those, there's this land promise. A promise of land that is made to Abraham. It's a land of Canaan. It is this promised land. It's described as a paradise where there is abundance and there is flourishing here in this land. It is a spacious land. It's flowing with milk and with honey. It almost sounds like the Garden of Eden. Abraham's children, who would become, of course, the nation of Israel, would eventually move into that land. They would inherit that land after a long journey, wandering in the wilderness, fighting many battles against their enemies. God gave them this land as their inheritance. And whenever the promised land uh, comes up in the Old Testament, and it does come up a lot, It's always pictured as a place of rest. There's rest to be found in that promised land. Rest from their long journey, rest from their enemies. But as great as their experience was in the land, and it was great for a time, there was still wickedness in the land. Not just in others, but in Israel themselves. The effects of the curse and the effects of the fall were still there. There was still corruption. There was still injustice. There was still murder. There was still hatred. So it was no Garden of Eden in that sense. So when King David wrote Psalm 37, he did it from within the land, looking forward to a future hope when those who wait for the Lord would inherit the land. 
even from within the land. I hope you notice this. David's looking forward to inheriting the land. He looked forward to an ultimate place of rest where sin and death and evil did not exist. So the land of Canaan was always just meant to be like an appetizer so that they would get some sort of a taste of what the new earth and heaven would be like. A heavenly Jerusalem. Of course, Hebrews points out that even though Abraham lived in the promised land, he was looking for a different home. He was looking for something greater. He was looking for a, a, a city not built by hands, a country not stained by sin. And the word, the word for land and earth, the same word, the land promise seems to be expanding over the history of the Bible. So it starts out small and the boundaries came to be, seem to be expanding until we get to the point in Romans 4.13 that tells us that Abraham, the children of Abraham, more correctly, will inherit the whole world. Romans 4.13. And it's that new creation earth that Jesus speaks of, the meek inheriting. Why is this good news? How would the crowds who were gathered to hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount be encouraged by these words? Those folks who were living under Roman persecution who, just like us, were beaten and battered by the effects of sin in their own life. He promised them that those who had put their faith in the Lord would one day find their rest in the new earth that's even better than Eden. It's worth taking a minute just to, to, to think about this some more. God's people will inherit the earth. It is a physical space. So do you think of your final destination as a Christian, as being some other world somewhere. Maybe even without a body, floating about. Some immaterial world or galaxy somewhere. And to be sure, when someone dies in faith, they go immediately to be with the Lord. All Christians who die physically are very much alive spiritually with Christ. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, Second Corinthians 5 tells us. But theologians call this being apart from the body and with the Lord, they call this the intermediate state. It's the intermediate state because it becomes between our personal life here on earth, our present life, and our future life in the new earth, in eternity. So we await the return of, the return of Christ when the kingdom of heaven would come down to earth. So our final destination is a resurrected, imperishable, glorified, material body. The future that awaits the Christian is a restored life on earth. After the effects of sin, corruption, evil have been destroyed. God's people will spend eternity in a physical glorified body on a physical glorified earth. One commenter it notes that throughout the entire Bible, the ultimate destiny of God's people is an earthly destiny. But it's not a fallen earth with microbursts and weak power poles. There is no sickness, sorrow, pain, nor death. The last question in the New City Catechism 52 asks this question. What hope does everlasting life hold for us? The answer it gives it reminds us that this present fallen world is not all there is. Soon we will live with 
and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven and the new earth, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. In August of 1643, an English Puritan named Thomas Coleman preached a sermon in Parliament, and he compared the, the fight that was going on between Charles I and Parliament there in England, he compared it with the, the battle that Israel fought as they were trying to come into the Promised Land. And he referred to it as a long pursuit of happiness. That, that happiness, that thicker meaning of happiness... Was, was found, in a sense, when they found abundance, they found the rest of the promised land. But Israel knew that their pursuit of happiness, of blessedness, of enduring satisfaction would not be finally satisfied in Canaan. You need to come to terms with the fact that yours won't either. That doesn't mean that you should stop seeking happiness. Indeed, it's the opposite. It just means you should stop seeking it where it cannot be found. Do you long for rest? Do you long for rest from your long journey? Rest from fighting against your own sinful passions? Christ promises that if we wait on him with patience, we will delight ourselves in abundant peace. But this is a future reality. Inheriting the earth will not happen until Christ returns. Indeed, who would even want to inherit our present fallen earth? But don't think for a second that this is irrelevant to your life right now. Jesus' words mean that our present happiness is not dependent on our circumstances at the moment. This is the paradox of the Beatitudes that we've run into the last few weeks. Jesus is telling us that we can be happy and we can flourish despite our current conditions because those in Christ are truly happy because they're not victims of happenstance but objects of God's providential love. And this will be made fully evident to us when the kingdom of heaven becomes the kingdom of earth. This is otherworldly wisdom. Aristotle would not have agreed with this, of course. Aristotle thought that no one could be happy if he suffered, uh, suffered evil, if he suffered misfortune. That's the opposite of happiness. But Jesus showed us that happiness and pain are not at odds in this life. Happiness is more than a feeling. It's the pursuit of Christ-likeness. My goal as a preacher, seeking to be faithful the word, is not to promise you temporary satisfaction in this life. It's to remind you of Christ's promise of eternal happiness in the next. And that should bring a smile to our faces. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do a work in us right now. Where do we need to become more meek? What areas are we letting uh, our passions take over? This last week, 
months in the past, years in the past, things that you, that you want to bring to mind right now, to help us to repent of, to help us confess of. Father, we want to do this out of obedience to what you've already given us. You've, you've told us we've inherited the land. We want to be more like Jesus, not to earn your favor, but because we have your favor. Father, we ask that you would do this here among us for our good, for the good of others, for the glory of your name. Amen.